Well, good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Hey, great to see you. Thank you so much for being here. If we have not had a chance to meet, um, like Pastor Felix said, my name is Mackenzie Matthews. I'm our Connections Pastor here at Timberline, and I would love to meet you if I haven't had a chance to meet you, especially if you're new, new-ish. Um, if you're checking out Timberline, I'd love to just shake your hand. Um, I'll be back at our Welcome Center with some of our other staff and team, and we just would love to shake your hand. But thank you so much for being here. Thank you for watching online. Uh, we are continuing our series that we've been in looking at the book of Mark, where we've been focusing on Jesus, each episode at a time, what he did with his life and his ministry. And today, we are in a very famous, very meaningful account from the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. I have had so many thoughts on this passage, I almost haven't even been sure where to start. I could keep you here a couple hours. Don't worry, I won't. I won't. This is a tough passage, but it is so rich in meaning and relevance for us. For um, some background, we are in the final moments of Jesus's life before his coming betrayal and death and resurrection. Last week, we looked at the Last Supper where Jesus ate and celebrated Passover with his disciples. That happened in the upper room and then it was about a 15 minute walk to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, where our account takes place today. It is an olive tree orchard. I had the privilege of visiting Israel and going to Gethsemane in 2019. This is a picture that I took of one of those olive trees. They are massive and lovely. And that's the setting for our scripture today, the middle of the night in a quiet olive orchard. Now, I've invited a friend to come up and help me read the passage. This is my friend, Will. Uh, Will is one of our year-long interns. He spends a lot of time with high school kids, so if you have one or you like them, this is the guy you want to know. But Will Will is going to read the passage for us. So if you have your Bibles, you want to follow along, you want to follow along on the screen, Will's going to read it for us. All right. So, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. He did not know what to say to, or they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Mm -hmm. Great job. Thank you. Yeah, we can clap for him. Thank you. Thank you, Will. Okay, so deep breath with that, right? This account is devastating. It's difficult. 
um, we see layers of disappointment, abandonment, anguish, and also incredible trust and surrender. You know, I heard a story about a four-year-old who recounted um, this passage from their kids' service. It's always fun hearing kids. They're like, what was the Bible story? You know, and hearing what they're going to share, how they sum it up. But this four-year-old said, Jesus prayed and the men were sleepy. (laughs) Jesus prayed and the men were sleepy. It's not wrong, right? And we can feel sympathy with that. How many of us have had our eyes heavy, right? Where it's hard to stay awake. Even though if Jesus tells you to stay awake, you think you'd be doing some jumping jacks or something, right? It's, it's hard to read this and not feel disappointed, saddened um, by Jesus' closest friends and disciples. We'll continue to feel this way in the following hours when they scatter and abandon him in his greatest time of need. The Hebrew scriptures made this known before. Jesus himself said this would happen, that they would all fall away. So it's not a surprise, but it's still hard to see. It's like watching a familiar movie where you know what's going to happen, and yet you feel yourself willing for a different outcome. You guys ever do that? I have several movies where I watch where I almost want to like yell like my intervention could change the pre-filmed movie, <laughs> right? I imagine you do this too. You know what's coming, but you still watch it hoping that it could be different, and that's how I feel with the disciples. Despite knowing what's coming, it still feels tragic to watch them fail. Now, there's a few things to notice here. In verse 32, it says that he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. Within the 12 disciples, we also have three who have inner circle moments. Here, there are 11 disciples. They're with him. Judas has already departed by this point. But there's 11, and yet there's three he brings in further, deeper in with him, literally and figuratively. Peter, James, and John, they've been given um, other inner circle moments before, but only two other times. Do you remember what they were? A little Bible trivia for you? In Mark 5, we see them included in the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. And in Mark 9, we saw them included in the transfiguration. And here, It's interesting, right? Why those? Why here? What was he teaching them? What did they experience with each of these? We never quite learn like we do when we experience something, right? It's one thing to be told. It's a whole different animal to experience. In the home of Jairus, they experienced up close Jesus' power over death. And then on Mount Tabor, they experience up close Jesus in his divine glory. And here, they experience up close Jesus' suffering alongside their own weakness. That's a hard teaching. And yet it's precisely in that mix that they experience the extent of his love for them. Now, we tend to run from both weakness and suffering, right? There's certainly uncomfortable, and it's precisely in the middle of that mix ourselves and our weakness and our suffering where there is incredible potential to experience the reality of God's love. Verse 36, he said to them, stay here and keep watch. He returned to his disciples and found them diligent and praying fervently on his behalf. Ah, no. He returned and found them sleeping. 
his inner circle failed. They failed him. And if you remember Peter from last week when he says, essentially, I will never fail you. (laughs) Even to death, I will follow you. It's not the case. It's not even close. And there's a threefold failure here. You can't read this without seeing that threefold pattern, right? Jesus leaves to pray three times, and three times he comes back to find them asleep. There will be a threefold denial just hours after this by Peter. And then there will be a threefold restoration when Jesus will offer his love and his care and his reinstating of Peter. All of that is to come. I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag on that one. But we can't appreciate the weight of the grace without first sitting in the weight of the failure and the weakness and abandonment in Jesus' time of need. In the same way, we can't appreciate the weight of the resurrection without also knowing our need for the saving in the first place. It says he, Jesus, began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. In Gethsemane, we see Jesus painfully human. Painfully human. Remember how Philippians says it, we ought to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, in very nature God, yet painfully human. Jesus is not a robot. He is not stoic. Instead, we see a suffering servant, deeply distressed, overwhelmed to the point of death, his words, falling to the ground in anguish physically. Luke's account of the Garden of Gethsemane says it like this, that being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The capillaries in his forehead literally burst. This is next level stress and struggle. Is Jesus surprised by what's coming? Is this news to him that he's going to die? He's been talking about it for a while. Here we're watching his humanity. Jesus knows the depths of human despair. And because of that, he can offer hope to any of us in despair, unlike anyone else can. In Hebrews, it says it like this, for we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He gets us and can uniquely meet us and care for us in our moments of despair and darkness in our dark nights of the soul. In our moments of suffering, Jesus empathizes, and he can care for us unlike anyone else can. I love the way Tyler Staten puts it in his incredible book on prayer called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. He says, I can trust the God who is revealed in Jesus, the God who has never looked down on suffering from a lofty throne, but has always looked into the eyes of suffering from level ground. I can trust the God who refuses to offer platitudes from a safe distance, the God who descends into the mess with me. 
I love that. He looks into the eyes of suffering from level ground. Painfully human. Now, in his darkest hour, Jesus embodied his teaching on prayer with surrender. You can see all throughout his life, Jesus had regular rhythms of solitude and prayer. In Luke's account of Gethsemane, it says that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. They went out as usual, sometimes translated as his custom. All throughout his life and ministry, he would sneak away to be alone to pray at often um, perplexing times or in ways that were even frustrating to his disciples, he would retreat away from everyone to find respite, to be refueled, to pray. He regularly went to be alone, which is just worth noting and self-evaluating. If Jesus went away to rest and refuel, how much more should we, right? When was the last time you chose to sneak away to be alone to pray? What rhythms do you have in place for silence and solitude? I know I've shared this before because I've been on a long journey befriending silence and solitude, and it's been a journey. (laughs) But I think we need it more than ever. And I want it for you. Now, I have a practice for this that includes daily uh, silence and solitude, even if it's just 10 minutes first thing in the morning where I'm not looking at my phone, I'm not reading anything, genuinely just taking a moment to be silent and pray. And then I practice a day of solitude, a month. Sometimes it's a half day when my only intention is to connect with God. That's what I do. What might you do? What do you do? If Jesus needed it, it's safe to say that so do we. And here is his prayer. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There's so much in just that verse. Do you hear the echoes of how he taught them to pray? In his most famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave them a script on prayer. You may know it. You may have grown up reciting it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's the Lord's Prayer, a template for how to pray. The Lord's Prayer begins with our Father. In Gethsemane, he calls out Abba, Father, which shows a comfort, a familiarity, like my son calls my husband Dada. This is a relational tone. In the midst of anguish, he knows the Father loves him. He calls him Abba. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Abba, who loves me, who is able to do all things, take this cup from me. This cup he doesn't want. What is that? In the Hebrew scriptures, the poets and prophets describe God's justice with a ton of metaphor. Uh, God's justice and God's wrath are both described as cups. God's judgment of human evil is portrayed within a cup that would be poured out. There is a cup of justice, accountability and consequence for our actions, for the choices that we make. In Romans 1, there's this imagery of God handing over the people to what it is they want, what they choose. The cup of justice is meant for his people, for the choices of rebellion, control, um, selfishness, pride, moral corruption, 
all the injustice and evil, all of it, done to us, done by us, all of it. There is accountability and consequence. Our choices matter. God is just. The whole cup of God's justice, that is the cup Jesus is referring to here. That is what Jesus takes in his death and resurrection. That is what he is preparing for, struggling with in Gethsemane. It is key to understanding this. The weight of what Jesus feels is so heavy and so costly because it is. Jesus emptied the cup of God's justice so there wouldn't be a single ounce left for you if you trust in him. Jesus emptied the cup of God's justice so there wouldn't be a single ounce left for you and for me as we trust in him. He drained it dry so that we don't have to. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both hands and at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry for all his people. He drank it all. He endured all. He suffered all. He suffers. Why? Why this extent of suffering? This might look like weakness. What kind of almighty God would submit himself like this? But it's all about love. No one has ever loved you like Jesus has. Jesus offers, um, I take the consequences of your actions and you can take the consequences of mine. That's the offer on the table for each of us. Incredible love, costly, weighty grace. That is what's coming. And here Jesus pleads for another way. It's as if he says, is there another way? What I want is not to do this, but it's not about what I want. My life is not about what I want. What I want is what you want. It's the embodied version of how he taught them to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. This is surrender. In this night of anguish, we can step back and we can see this pattern of prayer. Jesus has three movements um, that I find to be a really helpful invitation for us especially in our seasons of suffering, but really in any season that we are in, every day, we can emulate these. We can follow his pattern. John Mark Comer outlines these in his solitude practice from practicing the way that I participated recently with our year-long interns. It's really good. But he calls it the Gethsemane prayer. You give God your feelings, you give God your desires, and you give God your trust. That's what we see Jesus do. He gives God his feelings. We see him name the state that he's in. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Right? Now, it's not always easy for us to name how we feel. Um, for some of us, it comes easier than others. Right? Culturally, we're in a time when uh, the compulsion to not feel, especially our painful feelings, is strong. It's increasingly easy. We have a whole host of ways to distract ourselves from our pain, most of which happen on the device in our pockets, where people are literally getting paid millions and millions of dollars for our attention, right? Scrolling, social media, porn, online shopping. 
We can stay busy. We can stay busy with good things that can be distracting. We can eat, drink, be merry. Um, name your distraction of choice. There's a plethora. And then culture often tells us to stay positive, uh, to see the silver linings. It could always be worse, right? And when you're in pain, sometimes it can feel like people want to push you out of your pain. Life is beautiful, and it is also hard and broken and full of pain. And both can exist at the same time, the beauty and the pain. It's a skill to acknowledge and name our feelings and to do so as specifically as possible. When we name our feelings, it helps us realize that we are not our feelings. And it allows us to meet with God in a way that is honest and real. John Mark Comer says, one reason I think many people find prayer boring is they don't really pray. They perform. They hold back from God all the ugly stuff. But prayer isn't a place to be good. It's a place to be real. Hmm. Jesus went to the point of his pain in prayer, which is called lament. We have a rich biblical library of lament. Two-thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. They are honest. They are raw. They are not tidy, polite prayers. They are rough. They are real, real. Dan Allender said that the laments of the Psalms encourage us to risk the danger of speaking boldly and personally to the Lord of the universe. And C.S. Lewis says we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. I want to challenge you to give God your feelings without a filter. The next movement in this pattern, we see Jesus give God his desire. He says, please, Father, I don't want to do this. Again, we see honesty here from Jesus. Now, I think sometimes um, in our relationship with God and in prayer, we can be all twisted up when it comes to desire. Often they are complex, maybe they're confused, right? Many of us have no shortage of wants. I can tell you the 40 things in my Amazon cart save for later, right now. I've been crushing on a white Kia Telluride with the black plates. Ooh, that looks fresh. I would love to finish my basement and go to the beach. I have no shortage of of wants. And our consumer-driven culture just stokes the fire of that often in me. But the core longings of my life, that hits a deeper chord. The things I really want, a little deeper than my Amazon cart, right? Not to mention there are things I desire and wish I didn't. There are things I desire and feel like I shouldn't. You can see what I mean, that they can be twisted up, complex and confused. And then I think uh, there tends to be two sides of the spectrum with desire and prayer. Um, Both sides not biblical, I'll say that, but I think we tend to lean one way or the other. On one side, there's a sort of prosperity gospel mentality, an entitlement that says, I deserve to get what I want. God wants me to get what I want. I manifest whatever it is that I want, right? And then on the other side, we have fatalism, the belief that it's pointless to ask for my desire in prayer because it doesn't matter what I want. God's gonna do whatever God's gonna do. Whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen, Sort of like a shrug and an oh well. And there's often a real bedrock of disappointment under that one. 
the thinking, like, if I kill off desire in my life, I'll be protected. If or when, God says, no. It's another form of control. Two sides, see? Entitlement, fatalism. Now, in all of our desire, there's an invitation to a deeper place of connection with God. All of our desire, there's a potential for deepening our life with God. What might it look like for you to come before God with the wants and the longings of your life, with what it is you really want, good or bad, just honest before him? To trust him with what it is you long for, which is the third movement we see from Jesus. He gives God his trust. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He comes to this place of surrender and yielding. And it's not what he wanted. This is an unanswered prayer in Jesus' life. This is a no to what he specifically asked for. There was no other way. Jesus had unanswered prayer. Where are the places in your life that you have unanswered prayers? Unmet desires. Or where might you be wrestling? Because even what Jesus prayed, all things are possible for you. So why this? Why not this? You might feel like God has some explaining to do. The challenging invitation here is to trust even in the darkness. To trust even in uncertainty with what you don't get or understand. To let go of control. Which is so hard. Uh, It's counterintuitive. We're little control freaks, honestly. We trust our own ability to research, to make something happen. I'm just going to run the numbers, you know, figure out a few scenarios to engineer our perfect outcome for what it is we want, right? Jesus, take the wheel, take it from my hands. Carry, underwear, yeah. Far more often, we're horrendous backseat drivers, right? Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) And you're like, Okay. My son, he's three and a half. He's passionately in a phase where he says, I do it myself. I do it myself. We are heavily in that stage right now. This week, just a couple days ago, um, I watched him struggle to put a hoodie on for, I'm not kidding, probably 10 minutes. And I'll just tell you, it was hard to watch. Okay. And I was like, I can really, I can really help you. Just make this a little easier. And he's like, I do it myself. You know, absolutely not. He didn't say that, but that's the tone. I do it myself. Often I think we're like that. What would it look like for you to release control and yield yourself to God and his will for your life? Give God your feelings. Give God your desires. Give God your trust. This passage, the weight of his suffering, reveals the depth of his love for you and me. You know, Dr. Jerry Root, he was here about six months ago. One of the things he said when he was here, he said, the greatest of all sin is neglecting the love of God. We forget. We don't mean to, but we forget. No one has ever loved you like Jesus has. So as we end today, 
I wanna give you a moment to sit in silence, to take a few deep breaths, to ponder these things before God. So right now, just take a few deep breaths and ponder this account. Now I'd like to give you moments to pray this pattern Jesus modeled with the Gethsemane prayer. To first give God your feelings, to tell him what you're feeling with no filter. now to give God your desires, to tell him what it is you really want, good or bad, just honest. now to give God your trust, to release control, to yield yourself to him, his will for your life, which might look like sharing why you can't do this or why you feel like you can't do this. An honest struggle is better than a performance here. Now we're gonna have a moment to worship, to sing through our surrender. I want us to remain in this posture. But some of us are in seasons of suffering. Um, maybe you are wrestling, or you may have something really specific, a specific circumstance that you want to declare your trust in, or you wanna offer back to the Lord. You want to respond further. We want to mark this moment, and we want to take advantage of the gift it is to be able to pray for each other, to pray over you in that spot. So as we worship, we're going to kind of open up the front, where if that's you, I invite you to come forward. You may want to kneel. You may want to just open your hands. We're not going to interrogate you. We're going to sing one song together and then I'll pray for you, and the rest of us will hold you in love. We want to take advantage of that. But if that's you, I want to invite you to come forward during this song. So stand. Everyone can stand where you are, and if that's you, this is going to be open for you to do that with the Lord right now. Surrendering all, surrendering. 
desperate for you. I'm desperate for you. Father, we know that you were with us. And God, right now we pray for our friends at the front of the room right now, knowing that you are familiar with all of their ways, you know every hair on their head, and you know the exact circumstances they are laying before you. God, we pray for a tangible sense of your nearness to them. We ask for that. We know you're with them, and we pray that they would know it too, that they would sense it. God, we ask for strength and energy. We pray for healing in your name, Jesus. We pray for provision, and we pray for restoration in the ways, the things only you can do for restoration and relationship. God, we pray that you would move mountains and miracles, and we ask for that in your name, Jesus. And we do trust you. We ask for your will to be done. 
when we don't see it, when we don't get it, when we don't know, as we're standing in darkness, we're standing in uncertainty, you have perspective we don't have. Would you give a smidge of your perspective right now, God? Pray that they'd see fruits from the scenarios that they're in. We ask for that, God. You would honor this moment of surrender in them. We pray for comfort and peace that goes beyond understanding. We ask for that, for your grace and your mercy. It says we can come to you confidently and ask for that in our time of need. And so we do, on their behalf, we hold them and ask for that, Jesus. Thanks that you are with them. And God, we're thankful for the image that we have of a suffering servant in you who looks from level ground with us. Encourage us and strengthen us. And for anyone in this room who feels calloused or hardened, we lay that before you, God. Would you soften us? Would you remind us that you are trustworthy? Forgive us for the places that we take the wheel. (laughs) We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Bless you. You can find your seats. We have a prayer team who's going to be coming up here who would be available if there is anything that's stirred in you. I want to encourage you to take advantage of them. You can come and see them and get prayed over before you leave. You're also welcome to stay and sit for a moment. I know sometimes we can get on to the next thing, but I want to encourage you, if you'd like to linger, I invite you to. But as you go, I have a little benediction for you. So if you'd stand for a moment. Sorry, I'm making you sit and stand, sit and stand. As you go this week, may you know the depths of God's love and delight for you, that he looks upon you and smiles. May we not neglect, not forget the depths of his love. May you know him personally as you practice these patterns of meeting with him. And may we be a people who says, yet not my will, but yours be done for his glory. Right? Bless you. Amen. Take care, you guys.